G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. What are some of the factors, this is just where I'd like to begin some introductory comments, what are some of the factors that lead us to feel a bit deflated in our life at church together? What are some of the factors that, um, particularly that lead us to disengage, I guess, with things of church uh, and ministry, our church life together here as a church at at Good News? Um, I think there are lots of factors that from time to time can arouse a bit of a sense of disappointment um, in us or amongst us or um, even despondency. You know what I'm talking about? Just that little sag in our optimism, in our hope, maybe in our courage um, together about church or our investment in it from time to time. These things come, don't they? Uh, And today, I believe our final passage in this series in Corinthians that we've been doing in pieces over the last few years, um, our final passage now, we've come to it, chapter 16. I think this um, section of God's Word, I really hope our that this sermon, this passage, leads us back to a real and a vibrant um, enthusiasm and optimism and courage and engagement and investment in the things of the Lord Jesus here at our church together, do you see? I think this passage can really help us here, um, not, uh, not driving us out of uh, begrudging or fear or a sense of sort of unwelcome burden or whatever, but with a certain lightness and brightness uh, in the little contributions that we each make to our church life together um, week in and week out. Let me explain. See, today we take one last look at this church here in Corinth and I think the risk is, the risk is that we build the Corinthian church up in our minds to be more than they actually were, Uh, that we imagine the, the church for them to be somehow quite different to what it actually was and certainly quite different to what our church is day to day. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Um, I think there's lots to admire about the Corinthian church, um, but here's my suspicion. We read of this famous church in the Bible. They even have a couple of letters of the Bible named after them. Do we kind of romantically imagine that church for them just came easier? just was better, uh, grew more effortlessly, (laughs) Uh, just that growth, uh, that things just went more organically, more authentically, uh, certainly with less effort than it seems to take for our church to experience growth. Do you see what I mean? Um, You see, watching another church succeed, however you measure success, um, it can be a bit of a conflicting experience, can't it? Um, it's, it's like Gore Vidal um, famously said once, and I know this is an ugly thought to apply to church, um, but I think it's, it's part of the darker underbelly of our hearts here at church sometimes. Gore Vidal once said, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something inside me dies. And we look in from time to time, don't we, at these churches... That, that seem to be just going so swimmingly. Everything's going so well there down the road at that church over there across town. Uh, everything just seems to be flowing so effortlessly for them at the present time. And then we come back to our church 
And we come back to our responsibilities and our troubles and how much work it seems to take to get anything done or any improvement that does come seems to come at such a cost of effort and time and, you know, late nights and, and money sometimes. See, the Corinthian church, think about them for a minute, weren't they spectacular? Started by the Apostle Paul himself, can we say that of our church? Among their first converts were the soon-to-be superhero evangelists Priscilla and Aquila. Um, Acts chapter 18 uh, just makes this church sound so real and so alive as John read it to us a few moments ago. Imagine going to their church every week. Um, Here's how it was described, verse 4 of Acts chapter 18, if you've still got that passage open in front of you. Every Sabbath, he, uh, as in Paul, so every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue, so that's like Jewish church, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks um, about Jesus in the Gospel. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Of course, they did get kicked out of the synagogue pretty quickly, but never mind, they literally set up next door. If you look down at verse 7, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God, Crispus the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptised. Imagine going to their church every week. Down at verse 11, so Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the Word of God. And then, of course, you've got that middle bit of the chapter there where Paul takes off and he's travelling around the Mediterranean. Uh, But fear not, because further down, there's another superhero who enters the scene, Apollos. He gets converted over in Ephesus, decides that he wants to go and visit Achaia. Achaia is the Roman province where Corinth was. Uh, and, And the whole thing goes from strength to strength now with Apollos down there. With public debates, action every which where. Verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. You see, at their church, things were really happening. Um, At their church, new believers were baptised left, right and centre. At their church... Brothers and sisters, if you have ever felt um, a little deflated at the stories of of seemingly effortless growth and progress at that church down the road, I think 1 Corinthians 16 holds some very refreshing truths for us this morning. Uh, If you've ever felt yourself beginning to withdraw a little bit from life here at church, pull back a bit perhaps from responsibilities or things that you have signed up for, because the return on efforts just seems so small or so slow or so intangible, if church is the sphere in your life that's begun to just kind of get the bare minimum, then I think 1 Corinthians 16 has some refreshing and wonderful words um, for us. I'm I'm hoping it leads us back to a better place together um, as a church. How about we pray and then let's dive into it. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, as much as we know our own hearts, we do, we want to be people who rejoice when we pray for growth here and we see growth down the road, in a church down there. It's your kingdom, Father, wherever it is. We admit, Father, that we do battle against jealousy, 
within sometimes and we crave your help in, your, in, in the fight against that. We want to be people who delight in the name of Christ going forth throughout the world, even if for a time it barely seems to get traction where we happen to be. So, Lord, would you place within us, please, a determination to seek your kingdom first and not our own? And also, Father, we do long to see your kingdom grow here in us and with us and through us and out from us. So reveal, would you please, this morning, a Christ-honouring way forward together in the pursuit of his kingdom. May we learn that from your word today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 16. I reckon that the strange encouragement of 1 Corinthians 16 um, comes from its frank realism about what church life actually takes, uh, humanly speaking. Is there a comfort in, in just plain speaking about how tough, what practically is required, humanly speaking, to see a church grow or go well. Uh, it's the comfort of saying, you know what, you're not alone, Good News Christian Church. You're not alone. The very practical challenges of church life turn out to be very normal, very relatable, very comparable with God's people all down the ages. Uh, so here comes chapter 16. Uh, chapter 16, it, after all of that big lofty theology and beliefs and convictions about the resurrection and Christ's death for us, corrections of the Corinthian practice, uh, framework of ethics, all of these last 15 chapters, a vision for what the Christian life is supposed to be about, all that lofty stuff, the rubber hits the road in chapter 16 Talk gives way to action. Let me summarise the, the challenge, as I see it, of 1 Corinthians 16 for a church like ours. It's this, let the love of Christ, let the love of Christ lead us to lean in to the work of the Lord together for the long term with your head and your heart and your hands. Let me say that again. That's kind of my summary for today. Let the love of Christ lead us all to lean in, not pull back, pull away, step aside, to lean in to the work of the Lord for the long term with, and here are our three points, our heads and our hands and our hearts. Which of those presents you with the biggest difficulty, heads and hands and hearts? Um, chapter 16, it's so specific, it's so practical with... Uh, about how they're supposed to take up this collection or who's coming or going where, what we're going to do is we're going to see some of the principles, I suppose, that are at work in a chapter like this and see if we can uh, apply them, bring them across, translate them to our church. Uh, so let's start here. We need to learn to lean in to long-term ministry together. That involves, firstly, it involves our heads, our minds, uh, could we take a look at this whole business of the, uh, the collection for the church in Jerusalem? Let's pick it up from chapter 16 and verse 1. Please read with me there. Where Paul says to the Corinthian church, Now, about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Which you might think, gosh, that sounds a bit sort of bossy. <laughs> 
authoritarian. Paul's weighing in on this subject of money. Look, I get the impression that they, they must have talked about it before, Paul and the Corinthians. In fact, I suspect, just by the way he raises it, I reckon the Corinthians have asked him for advice. How should we go about this? And, and this is his advice now about the collection for God's people, verse 1. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Now, we do need to be a little bit careful. Uh, I mean, it's Christians talking about money in church, who knows how this is going to go. Um, but we do need to be a little bit careful that we just notice the issue that's actually on view here. He's talking about a specific issue, isn't he, Paul, here in this uh, topic. It's actually not a lesson about how much or how regularly our members should give to our church. Do you see that? That's actually not what Paul's talking about. Um, it's not really particularly, or at least explicitly, a passage about how churches ought to manage their collections or how frequently or whatever. So, please notice this, this wasn't, was it, it wasn't their regular giving to church. Rather, Paul is calling on them to use their heads, their minds, as they think about, as they be, try to be principled and deliberate for the cause of, in support of, these Christians on the other side of the world, in their terms, all the way across in Jerusalem, all the way to the other side of the Mediterranean. But, but can we say this much, in terms of the principle that seems to be underlying what Paul's doing here, just this much, that Paul, Paul won't dismiss cool-headed strategy, he won't dismiss planning, deliberate preparation, practical rules, I suppose, to-dos that make their way into your weekly calendar, he won't dismiss that stuff as in some way contrary to heartfelt, uh, genuine, authentic Christian spirituality, an expression of their Christian lives together, quite the opposite. How could they make sure that their actual collection the money that they amassed over... To, how could they make sure that that matched their zeal for the Christians over the other side of the Mediterranean in Jerusalem? Well, plan for it. Put a strategy in place. Don't just rely on everything being spontaneous. Oh, that's going to be a headache when I finally arrive. No, no, verse 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Reading between the lines, it seems fairly plain what it is that he's safeguarding against, isn't it? It's the situation, I won't use the phrase, but where some poor planning leads to some not great results. This is going to lead to an embarrassing result, actually, if they don't bring this kind of head work to this very practical matter. Embarrassment, friction, perhaps, as they try to scramble together enough money can you think of ways that we can put this principle into practice? This principle into practice. 
Now, perhaps it, it might re well relate to your um, finances and, and giving and all of the rest of it, whether to a missionary uh, or to um, a, a great need or to indeed to church. Um, one of the practicalities, as I mentioned a few, just before, in our modern world, where we largely don't carry very much cash, cash is that even giving these days it requires a trip to the ATM or it requires me to sit down with a direct debit form or it requires me to open up my net bank thing and figure out how much money I can give and the, what frequency and how much and all of that kind of thing. It does require my mind. But I mean more broadly, actually, are there areas of church life where we could actually serve the Lord so much better if we only stopped using the last-minute spontaneous and used our heads, put a bit of planning and thought into it. Um, for some of us, I think that's, um, some of us that comes very naturally, it's just the way we think about all of our life, it's certainly the way we think about church. For some of us, it is a bit of a shift to bring that same kind of, you know, A-level discipline, self-discipline and planning and head work into the church sphere of our lives. But I think what 1 Corinthians 16 models for us is that churches have been doing this since the beginning. It's not business speak, infiltrating church. It's just our God-given minds applied to things that really matter to us. Um, and in this respect, at least, may I just say, I'm so encouraged. Uh, I, really, I really applaud the work of the Board of Management in recent times, you know, planning our playground area. And, and taking the time to, to ask the ministry leaders, what do you need? What's going to help? What's going to serve the cause of the gospel here best? Let's come up with a plan, okay? Let's put the plan in front of you. I think it's marvellous. Are there things in your ministry area, in the team or the little circle that you move amongst, are there things that perhaps you need to be buying now so that you get them in time and it's not a last-minute thing? Are there things that you need to be saving for now? Are there things that you need to be building now? Other things you need to be asking the board of management for in the Sunday school room or whatever it is. Are there people that you need to be training now? Because training takes so long. Our heads. But secondly, leaning in to the Lord's work has to lead somewhere, as in lead to actually doing something. The plans that we lay with our heads... Secondly, need to lead to practically rolling up our sleeves, using our hands, at least metaphorically. So secondly, labour for the Lord means, well, it sure looks like hard work here, actually. Verse 5, please read along with me there, verse 5. Where Paul says, after I go through Macedonia, I'll come to you, Corinthians. For I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do, not want you, I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I have to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Could you just keep your eyes on those last two verses, friends, this morning? Tell me something. When is the last time that you interpreted opposition in some area of ministry, broadly speaking, interpreted opposition as grounds for you to stick at doing that thing. 
Verse 9 is positively weird, isn't it? So verse 8, I'll stay on at Ephesus, that's where Paul currently is until Pentecost, because, why? Because, I'll stay here, why? Because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. (laughs) And there are many who oppose, that's a reason to stay? When is the last time you took opposition as a sign that you are doing exactly what needs to be doing? You need to stay put and do it. You need to stick out. Don't stop. Don't do the easy thing. Don't hot foot it down to Corinth now, Paul, where you could be a real help right now. No, I know I'm in the right place right now because there's an effective door for ministry right where I am and there's lots of people who hate what I'm doing. Isn't that extraordinary? See, I think Paul knows in his heart, doesn't he, that the cause of Jesus in this world is not what this world would have him be on about. He knows that in his heart. It doesn't come easily, it doesn't come naturally, it won't uh, come easily in the context that he's in. Even for superhero Paul, I've decided to stay here because there's work to be done and I take opposition, therefore, as an indicator that I've still got work to do. Extraordinary. Now, um, should you therefore make a general rule based solely on whether or not you're experiencing opposition, you know, whenever you face opposition, that right there, that's a sign. This is where God wants me to be. Stay where it's hardest. You must not leave, all right? (laughs) Of course not. That's ridiculous. It's the two things paired together, though. Our aim and our goal in Christian life and, and work together isn't to suffer. The goal, isn't to, the goal isn't to arouse opposition, is it? But is something strange happening to you when... How, how could this work in practice? When that family member um, gets upset at you because you had the temerity to speak up about hell when his sister came to church. So his sister hasn't been to church like forever. She finally comes along to church again and you're just talking with her afterwards in conversation after the service and look, hell just comes up. And yeah, sure, it's a a vigorous conversation. It's a a difficult... Every conversation about hell is difficult, isn't it? But And then, have you done the wrong thing? Um, Some of my extended family, actually, the, the kids, they got in trouble at school... And there were letters sent home and the whole thing asking, the letters asking that they not speak about hell to their friends at lunchtime anymore um, because it was too full on for playground conversation. Now, I just want to say opposition is not necessarily a sign that you're doing anything wrong. Uh, And in some instances, it is a sign that you are right where you ought to be, doing precisely what God would have you be doing. So stick at it, brother or sister. Because a great door for effective work has opened for me and there are many who oppose me. Now take a look down at verse 15. I just want to extend this point a little bit. So we're using our minds and, and, and planning and strategy and all of that stuff that leads us to action with our hands... Actually doing things that are hard work. Verse 15, though, there's something I missed in this verse entirely and I'm glad it was pointed out to me. Verse 15, where it says, You know, you Corinthians, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. 
I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Uh, the upshot of that last bit's really simple, isn't it? Gosh, I'm glad those guys came. You know, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, they were a breath of fresh air. I take such encouragement from them. Why? Because their love for the Lord Jesus um, leads their hands to, to labour in the service of our Lord. I wish everyone was like them. They're the kind of guys you want to be. Um, here's the thing that I missed, right? If you took, take a look at verse 15... Paul doesn't just say, wow, look at how much they labour and work. He uses another word, which from our experience in the letter to the Corinthians, I think was, it would have triggered the Corinthians a little bit. It would have, been a, would have got under their skin a little bit. What's the word that he uses there? Verse 15, so you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and they have devoted themselves to what? To the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these, and on it goes. Now, think about the church in Corinth there. I think Paul's being a bit cheeky to a church that loved, loved to be first, loved their social standing, loved to to be admired and cared very greatly about how people saw them. Yes, but are you content to be known as not just hard workers, not just willing to roll your sleeves up, but as servants, service of the saints. Could you stomach that, Corinthians? Submit to such as these. I wish everyone was like these guys. Now, I'm not sure in our context, you know, as we apply our minds and our hands, I'm not sure in our context what you see as the most unattractive, unpalatable, unappealing ways to serve at church. What is it for you, I wonder? Um, are there areas of church life that you, you just you don't feel very flattered by? You wouldn't feel very flattered by if your friends from outside of church got wind that you were helping out in that way. I don't know, for some people it's, it's helping with kids in Christ, you know? They're just, uh, it's a, they wouldn't say it like this, but a little bit beneath me. It's just, I just don't, that's not my thing. Uh, for others, I don't know, it could, be, it could be mowing the lawn. See, for some of us, we go, yeah, mowing the lawn, I want to mow the lawn. For others of us, we go, ooh, no, it's a bit, can't someone else do that, please? Lastly, thirdly, head, hands, hands that lead us to service. Uh, lastly, thirdly, um, I think surely what comes through most strongly, most beautifully, most wonderfully as we peer under the hood of the very practical side of Corinthian church life. It's not their strategy and their service, it's not their head and their hands. The big thing that sticks out in nearly every paragraph is their hearts, their hearts. Uh, we, we lean in to labour for our Lord because of His heart for us, firstly, but which then directs our heart out to the others around about us. This is a chapter about love and fondness amongst Christians and affections of Christians for one another and longing. Now, is that too much to say? I don't think so. Verse 6, have a look with me there, where Paul says, 
We'll just skim over a little bit at first. Perhaps I'll stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I, don't, I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. What a lovely thought. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Verse 13, which is, is so very practical. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong. Do everything in love, verse 14. Now, verse 18, for they, uh, as in Stephanus and the lot, uh, refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. But the real affection shines through, doesn't it, in those closing verses. And I find myself wondering as I read them, do our greetings of one another carry this kind of affection, carry this kind of warmth for one another? Does this warmth among us, a church of God's children, just like the people in Corinth were, does it grow into more and more of this? Is there an eager affection that marks us as a congregation of God's people? Verse 19, could we take a look there? The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He said, just put the pen down, give me a turn. I'm going to write this with my own hand. This bit. If anyone doesn't love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And he adds this to this letter, which he doesn't really do anywhere else. Verse 24, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's move towards a conclusion together, brothers and sisters. I see in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's parting words, for now at least, to a church that's going really well in some respects, terribly in others, and they have some serious things to sort out, but really well in some respects. I see in chapter 16 a pattern of church life where every single member, everyone amongst them, knows the grace of Jesus towards them, lives in the light of his coming return and his glory. Uh, the Corinthians, they don't labour for Jesus because they're anxious about their standing before him or because they, need, they feel that they need to do a little bit more so that Jesus will love them finally, won't he, if I try a bit harder? They know Jesus came and died for their sin. They know Jesus as the most important person in their world and they are gladly serving the Lord Jesus, serving with head and hands and especially their hearts. They're doing it from love, not to get love. So I see a church here, 1 Corinthians 16, where every single member leans in to the labour of the Lord, labour that they know is going to stretch them, that they expect will arouse opposition, that they think is going to be long. Why? Because they have nothing they'd rather do. They have no greater Lord over their lives. Folks, as we look in at their church, I don't know, do you begin to feel a bit deflated and demoralised and disappointed at our own? Or does 1 Corinthians 16 give us this comfort? that our labour for the Lord is not in vain. How about we pray together? Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we...
We do long for the return of our Lord Jesus and we pray now with Paul, come, O Lord. Would you please keep us grounded in Jesus, Father, in our church life? Would you please keep us from just coasting or cruising or disengaging? Would you please keep us from frantically, anxiously thrashing about as if that's what's going to earn your favour. Father, give us instead, would you, a steady resolve in every corner of church life to give our head and our hands and our hearts to the labour of our Lord. Father, where we've become perhaps a bit complacent or lazy or sloppy or just lost a sense of the glory of Jesus, the urgency and priority of his cause, would you refresh us please? But lastly, Father, we we long to love one another more and more after the pattern of Christ's love for us. A love that's real and that's deep, that's marked by affection and warmth and fondness. Father, may we love in such a way that we do refresh one another with our presence. We're a joy to be around to one another. We comfort and encourage one another when the days are long and when the opposition starts to wear us down. (coughs) Father, we pray for growth in our church. And if you choose to give growth to the church down the road instead, may we both rejoice and redouble our efforts in our response to Christ's grace toward us. And in his name we pray. Amen.